Hello, universe. Welcome to Cross Defense, your weekly dose of worldview demolition. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. And for the next hour, we're going to be thinking about the scriptures, recovering the joy of theology, setting our imaginations on fire with the clear word of God. We're going to talk about, for the first segment, how we are addicted to making a case for our own worth and what the scriptures has to say about that. And then after uh, we get that wrapped up uh, in about 15 minutes or so, we're going to be joined by Pastor Warren Graf uh, from Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who's going to bring, I don't know what, he's, he's always, um, he, he's particularly interesting to talk to because he's always grabbing stuff from who knows where and talking about who knows what. Uh, and I love it. I mean, I love just calling him up and seeing what's on his mind. Well, that's what we're going to do. We're going to call him up. We're going to see what's on his mind, and we're going to talk about it. Last time we had him on, he was talking about the uh, legislation um, in in California about uh, hate crimes and conversion therapy. We'll see what he's uh, thinking about today. But before we do that, I want to talk to you all about um, about our addiction with making the case for our own righteousness or our own worth. Uh, it reminds me, uh, there, there's a beautiful little document uh, that Martin Luther wrote. It's called, we call it the Theses on Anthropology. It's basically Martin Luther talking about what it means to be a human being. And Luther takes on, of all people, Luther takes on in that piece, Aristotle, the greatest, perhaps, of all the philosophers, Aristotle, who said that man was a rational animal a rational animal and luther says aristotle the problem with aristotle is he doesn't know where man came from he doesn't know the creation and he doesn't know where man is going he doesn't know the doctrine of the resurrection and because of that he can't understand the true worth of man and luther goes on to say but we learn from the scripture what man is now think about this he says that man is justified P paul writes in galatians that we consider a man to be justified by God and Paul Luther understands that Paul there is not just talking historically that this man is justified or that man is justified but that that Paul is talking theologically he's talking in real terms he's saying that this is who we are we are justified now you know we've often heard the saying especially last year as we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the reformation that man is justified by faith and that this doctrine the doctrine of justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls Martin Luther said that this article of justification is the thing that holds all of these uh, all of the different doctrines together that the word of that the holy spirit brings the word of god to us and by that word forgives us sins and not just he doesn't just forgive our sins he doesn't just take away the bad things that we've done the the sinful acts that we've committed but that god in fact imputes to us gives to our account the righteousness of jesus the perfection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, that's the doctrine of justification. And so central is that doctrine that we say that it, it is the, the teaching that holds all of the scriptures and all of Christian truth together. But it, and so it's from that understanding that we even understand ourselves. Now, now let me think, think about it with you like this. That we as creatures of God, created in God's image, have in our own heart an incessant need for justification. And that justification is going to come from one of two places. Either we will be justified 
by grace through faith, we will be justified by God, or we will be justified by ourselves. Now, now that second option means this, that for most people, most of their lives are simply a building of an argument. Now, normally when we say argument, we think of these, you know, two people fighting with each other, two people yelling at each other. Understand this argument like a court case. You know, a lawyer goes to, to court and he's not yelling at anybody, but he's building an argument. He's presenting evidence and he's trying to make a case. And most of us, for most of our lives, are trying to make a case. With the things that we say, we're trying to make a case. With the things that we do, we're trying to make a case. With the clothes that we wear, with the car that we drive, with the home that we live in, with the way that we present ourselves to the world, we're trying to make a case for ourselves. And we're trying to make the argument that, that we have value. We're trying to make the argument that we matter. We, we might be trying to make the argument that we're good or or that we are somehow uh bad in a good way we're tr- we're trying to present ourselves to the universe as um as people who should be here now jesus talks about this in luke chapter we had this uh gospel reading yesterday uh about lazarus and the rich man but but as as luke is introducing it we get we get this kind of language so i'm in luke chapter 16 verses 14 and 15 where luke says the pharisees also were covetous they loved money they heard all these things and they mocked jesus and jesus said to them you are they which justify yourselves before men but god knows your heart can can you imagine that jesus looks at the pharisees and he says you guys you Pharisees are busy justifying yourselves before humanity. You are busy with your life, with your works, with the things that you say, with the things that you wear, with, with the way that you present yourself to the world. You are busy trying to justify yourselves to the people around you. And we have to hear those words and, and, and with, a, with an open heart, open ears, we have to hear those words also directed against us because we are also those who are busy justifying ourselves before men. We, we are those who are, who are running around trying to make a case for our own worthiness and for our meaning. We are those who, by the things that we say and the things that we do, trying to make the case for everyone who's watching that we are successful. You know, that we that we've made it or that we're on our way that that we are good that we are worth the space that we take up on the earth that we are valuable to 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 our neighbor to God or to whatever now I want I want you to as you listen I want you to think about that and to and to let it sink in because all of us have a sinful flesh which is like a it's like having a little Pharisee living inside of us this little Pharisee and this little Pharisee plays religious games and is trying to build a particular theology, and all of it is, is for this reason. It's to try to make this case of our own worthiness. Now, now some of us have succeeded. Some of us have failed. Most of us are somewhere in between. I mean, we're still in the middle of it. We're still, we're still building the argument. 
whenever we do something wrong, we we minimize the sin that we commit. We we make excuses for it. You know, as the as our own mistakes and our own failures enter into the case, then we're we're presenting contrary evidence. Oh, this is why it had to happen this way. This is why it went down this way. It's not my fault. It happened to me, et cetera, et cetera. So we're minimizing our sin. We're minimizing our mistakes. And then when we manage to do something good, we maximize it. We want everybody to see it. We post it on Instagram, hashtag no filter. <laughs> So that we're busy minimizing our, the things we do wrong. We're maximizing the things that we do right. And why are we doing this? Because we're presenting to the universe the case for our own worthiness. Now, now, building on this, when Jesus says, you are those who justify yourself before men, he then tells us the story of two men, Lazarus and the rich man. And remember the rich man, he, the, the way that Jesus describes him, his life is just overabundant. It's, it's got, he's got everything that he could possibly need. It says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine lemon, linen and fared sumptuously every day. You got the picture of this rich man. I mean, he's got, the, he's got the best clothes. He doesn't just have the clothes that keep him warm. He's got the clothes that show off to the neighbor. He's got the best food. He doesn't just have bread and water, and he's content with these. He's got the food that, that, uh, you know, that can throw a house party and make everybody delighted with it. I mean, he, he's got friends all around. He's got a, he, he doesn't just have a house. He's got a walled thing. He's got a gate that you have to go through to get into his estate where the poor man sits and would love to have some of the crumbs. So rich is this guy that, that Lazarus would love to have a belly full of the crumbs that fall from his table. This is this picture of abundance. And this rich man is presented to us by Jesus and the scriptures as the one who has made successfully the case for his own worth and his own value. You see it? <laughs> I mean, he's, ach he's achieved it. He's got, he's got all the friends. He's got the home. He's got a, he's got a five-chariot garage. <laughs> he's got all that you could possibly dream in this world. And then Jesus is going to contrast him with the poor man who sits at his gate. Lazarus, Lazarus, your brother, Lazarus. And the rich man is covered with his fine linen. Lazarus is covered with sores. The rich man is surrounded by friends. Lazarus is surrounded by dogs who are licking his sores. It's just disgusting to imagine. The rich man has a full belly full of the finest stuff. Lazarus is listening constantly to the litany of his moaning stomach as he longs to have just a tiny bite of food. You see the difference here? And, and if you were to look at those and say, which one, has, which one has succeeded in making the argument that you and I are trying to make? Which one has been successful in saying that, hey, I'm worth it. I should be here. This is, I, I, I'm of value. I've, I've, I'm a success. I'm good in all of this person. Who is it except for this rich man? He, he has come into the conscience, into the courtroom of his own conscience. He's made the argument for his own worth. He's argued it with his clothes, with his food, with his friends, with his success. And surely he said, look at all of the success. God is happy with me. And Lazarus, on the other hand, has failed to make that argument. I mean, Lazarus, by all accounts, is a waste of space. <laughs> he is useless. His life is meaningless. But Jesus tells us, and this is to dial back again to the verse that we were looking at before, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 16, verse 5, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. 
All the things that we use to prove our worth, all the arguments that we present to, to make the case that we are meaningful, all of it, Jesus says, are useless. In fact, Jesus says something more. Not only are all of those things useless, but they're an abomination. It, it's not just that God doesn't, doesn't like them. God, doesn't, God despises them. You sit there and make the case for your own worth, and it is going to be, this, listen very carefully, it is going to be a failure. Even if you succeed like the rich man, the point is that you should not be making the case for your own righteousness. You should not be making the case for your own worthiness. It's, it's not your job to build the argument that you have meaning. You are those who justify yourself. I am the one who justifies myself. But Jesus puts us in the world not to justify ourselves, not to even engage in the argument, win or lose, but rather to be justified by grace through faith, to be justified by God. To let God be the one who says that we are worth it. God is the one who is going to give us value and meaning and make us good and righteous and whole. He is the one who justifies, who judges, and who delivers righteousness. Now, look, here's part of the problem. I mean, we find ourselves making the argument for our own worth. And we judge ourselves to either be making that argument successfully or to be making that argument poorly. We fall on the one side into pride or we fall on the other side into despair. But both of them are wrong. We shouldn't be making the argument at all because the argument for, listen, listener, the argument for your worth was made already by Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And he ascended into heaven to carry that argument before the throne of God. And the argument is that you have value, not because of the good works that you've done, because of the things that you've managed to do, because of the, the nice uh, things that you've created, or because of your name, or because of your riches, because of your clothes, your wealth, your success, your job, your education, or any of it. None of that is why you have value. You have value because the Son of God spent his blood to buy you. The Son of God spilt His blood to redeem you. The Son of God entered into your flesh and bore your sins so that you could be His friend. And our value comes from that. <laughs> I remember a while back, uh, we, were, we were traipsing across the outback of Australia, and for some reason the guy with me was an economics guy, and we were talking about the value of a dollar. And he says, well, how do you, how do you know how much a dollar is worth? And, and there, he says there's two ways. The, the way you know is how much, how much work you had to put into it to get it, and on the other hand, what you can get when you spend it. Well, this is how you have your worth, to see what is spent for you. And the thing that's spent for you is the blood of God. It is the death of Jesus. And you cannot be more highly treasured than that. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We're talking about Jesus and the gifts that he gives. We're going to come back on the other side of the break with Pastor Warren Graff and see what kind of goofy, goofiness he's been looking into. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. 
Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to KFUO at KFUO.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. In 1924, we embraced the new technology of that day. Radio. Since that day, we've stayed on the cutting edge of technology. There are many easy ways to listen to Worldwide KFUO. On the air, online, and on demand. We proclaim the gospel of Christ in both word and song. Now that's why you should listen. The where and the how, well, that's up to you. The messenger of good news. Worldwide KFUO. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Oratio, the dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. Well, hell, welcome back. Cross the fence, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We were talking about we were talking about how we are obsessed with making the argument of our own righteousness, but Jesus comes along and says, "Hey, stop, stop making that argument. I've done it for you." Uh, probably Pastor Warren Graff taught me about that. Well, maybe the Bible first, but Pastor Warren Graff is a pastor of Grace Lutheran Church in Aurora. Wait a minute, Albuquerque, New Mexico. We got that one yeah. right. And he's joined us to bring some, what do you got? Pastor Graff, how are you, by the way? Just fine, thank you. Good to hear, good to hear your voice. How's, uh, how's the weather down there? Is it like, in New Mexico, it's always a... Uh... Right, right now, it's actually beautiful. We had some rain yesterday, which is, you know, a, a, bit, uh, a bit strange and nice. And today, it's, I don't know what the temperature is. I'd say it's around 80. It's not terrible. It's kind of nice. Nice. What, what do you got for us today? Well, I thought that, um, what, in this week when people are talking about Roseanne Barr and now the, uh, the Supreme Court decision today, but I thought it might be worth talking about the new law that was passed in Denmark. Uh, so all right. You know I know exactly what I'm speaking of. I'm I sure, don't. Right? So, tell, what, so what okay. is the new, what's the new law? Then, then here goes. Um, this is from Daily Wire, but it's, all, it's, it's uh, elsewhere on the news, too. Uh, the Danish... Legislature voted Wednesday to join France, Germany, Belgium, and Austria in criminalizing Islamic full-face veils and other face coverings. Wow. The vote wasn't close. It passed 75 to 30 votes. Um, and then just, so basically it's the, the burqa law. A woman is not to have her, uh, is not to wear burqa, is not to have her face covered in public. 
Ah, and so, yeah, that. so so that comes down with a couple things. Critics, uh, which includes Amnesty International, which I think is interesting. When when in a moment we'll talk about what this means for for women, but Amnesty International, believe it or not, is on the side of not having what they call a blanket ban. They don't want they, they do want women to have to wear the burqa if they're coming from an Islamic family that wants to make them wear the burqa. Um, which, again, I think that's interesting that Amnesty International would take that stance of a woman being able to be forced to wear a burqa by her, by her family or her community. Um, but then supporters of the law, which is, is apparently a large coalition, if you just go by 75 votes to 30, say that the law targets an ideology that would subjugate women, and if allowed to take root in Danish society, they say it could mean well, many others would lose their right to freedom, which I think is an unfortunate argument because they could just say that women are losing their right to freedom. Why do they have to? That right there should be the argument. Is, right. Are women being treated rightly if they're being coerced into wearing this? Um, they shouldn't have to expand it. But w- with all of that, let me then just read a article um, recently, a month ago, about Iran, where, of course, they they don't have an anti-Burqa law. They have a pro-Burqa law or a forced Burqa law. And that's where authorities uh, on Wednesday sentenced an Iranian woman to two years in prison after alleging she was guilty, quote, of encouraging corruption for removing her headscarf. That was announced by Tehran's judiciary Wednesday. The woman whose identity is not clear which kind of, you know, I think that goes without saying. That's the whole point of the burqa is to make sure we do not know the identity of any women. Right. But the woman whose identity is not clear was arrested during a protest on Tehran's, Tehran's um, Engel Halab Street in December. And then that goes on with um, other women who are separately arrested after being pushed off a concrete block by Iranian police um, for protesting the compulsory hijab and then released on bail. Um, one of Maryam Shara Tamar Dari was pushed off a concrete block. So these women are going out in public places in Iran and standing on concrete blocks and other protrusions. They're, I guess, you know, natural to the architecture. And in sight of everyone, they're ripping the, their hijab or burqa off and waving it around, showing their face, which is in Islam, um, for a woman to show her face is sin number one, I guess. Um, so I just thought it's worth us as Christians not to think about the politics of it so much as what is what does this mean about showing your face? Why is it that Islam would want to make sure women cannot or must not show their face? And I think one way to get to that then is just to do a little you might say, quick thinking about what the word face means to our Lord. Yeah, now, because, before, yeah. Could, I, could I push, I mean, so uh, just a little bit of background, do you know what what the theological, I mean, I know we'll circle back around to it, but what would the, um, what would the pro-Burka argument, not when it comes into the West, because then it's a matter of, it becomes a matter of freedom, right? But what would the argument right. be, for um in the islamic societies what's the source of the of the burqa custom well 
I, I'm not sure. Sh- I'm not sure exactly the full. You know, if you talk to a scholar, but I've, I've done some reading on it, and and for that matter, I, I saw a um, a uh, imam on a YouTube preaching why why you keep your women, uh, you know, behind a, a veil and all of that. And part of it is the the men, of course, run Islam. Well, you know, we know that, but the men know men well enough to know that you can't trust men. And so what you need to do is make sure that the women then aren't tempting men because men uh, will do what men do. And so it becomes in the woman's fault that she put the man in the position of doing what he will do. In other words, if a woman gets raped, it is, it, it's her who is charged because we knew that the man would rape, would, would be the, the Islamic look at it. Um, we knew that that happened, so the woman needs to make sure that the man is not tempted. And and they will use language like that of of being um, tempted or or seduced and, and other things like that. So by putting the woman out there, the men can now be men. The women are just these um, what uh, indistinguishable blob blobs. But that's but that's okay because they're not important enough for us to know them as persons in the first place right which now that has to do with what you're talking about the theology of the face um which were taught from the scriptures right and and that's where as christians then we we really can rejoice in this because when we look when we look in in scripture the whole point of the lord showing his face is that he's showing his face in such a way that we can look at look on him we can behold him and he does not destroy us all we have to do is think of of the verses in um, numbers and and so these are the verses that every christian hears every sunday every time they have the lord's supper and as the pastor is what giving the blessing and sending people home with, with that blessing he says the lord bless you and keep you the lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, the Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Or that will be translated sometimes, um, his countenance, to keep it separate from the from the first one. But we have two references there of the Lord will lift up his face upon you, and that is his blessing to you. With that, we have the whole, um, what the, the whole context of in the ancient world, even when someone approached a throne in, at some, in some kingdoms, you have to approach the throne backwards so the king doesn't even have to look at your face. He doesn't have to recognize you as a person until he beckons you to, to face him and speak to him. Now that reminds me, is that what's going yeah. on with Esther? Esther, um, you know, here's exactly. the king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes there, and, and, uh, and she wants to go and, and make a case in the king's court that, hey, you shouldn't kill all the Jews, but she hasn't been invited. What did she say? Anybody, there's one rule about that court, and that is that anyone who goes into the court without the invitation, without the command of the king, is put to death, except yeah. for those who, for who the king raises the golden scepter, right? That's, the, that's what's going on right. there, too? Yeah, so, so for, for us to look each other in the face is for us to recognize each other as persons. And you know, just in a, in realistic terms, even without appealing to scripture, we can we can see this. Of how do you identify a person? Well, you identify them by 
um, a couple things. You look at their face, and right away you what, you lock onto their eyes and you remember their eyes or, or their nose. And, you know, so that if I look at Brian Wolfmuller's face, um, there's a Wolfmuller face and there, there is no other like it. And I won't there, make there is, by the way, a graph beard, and there is no other. There are a graph mustache, mustache. Yeah. and there is none other like it. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean that even has, you know, President Matthew Harrison even would be jealous of that. <laughs> that's right. right. So, I think that's that's official. He's officially. Yeah, sure. I think. Yeah. Right. I, I will go with that. Um, <laughs> but but how do you identify you, by their face and their voice? So right now you and I are speaking to each other. The, the way I know that it's Brian is because I know your voice. I know your cadence. We've, we've met before. We know each other. And so the two things in Scripture is, are we going to see the Lord's face, and are we going to hear his voice? And if he's not a true God, then what we're going to need to do is make up some idol of him, which will be the form of an animal or, or something, and we will bow down to that, but it's not a true face, and there is no voice coming from it. And the prophets make this point of, of when did you when did you hear words from your um, from this idol that you carved yourself? So in Islam, when a woman's face is covered, that is the way of saying you're not a person, you're, you're not a, a, a human being. You're um, maybe owned by one, possessed by one, used by one, or more. However that however they would see that working out in the family. But, but you're not a person who stands on your own. And so it really does, in that way, you could see that Denmark, even though they may not be thinking this through fully, but at least they know that you should not be able to force a woman to cover her face. Right. And a woman going out in public who wants to engage with other people in the marketplace or, or in social um, situations, she needs to show her face. She needs to come at another person as a person herself. And that's to recognize her in her fullness. Now, what what was the argument that was made in Denmark about the reason why this was considered illegal or is a ban the burqa is banned, etc.? What what argument did they make? The the people who who wanted to have women show their face? The, yes. You're saying, okay, well, I think what I read, I think, is the, the strongest part of their argument, from what I'm seeing, is where supporters of the law, and it goes a coalition, which includes most of the country's conservatives, etc., they say that the law targets an ideology. So I think this is, the, this is the statement. It targets an ideology that would subjugate women, and if allowed to take root in Danish society, could then mean many others would lose their right to freedom. So, so it, it's right. It's rightly seeing that it subjugates women. It, it's taking away their freedom. So, so they. But their argument there is that it's a. It's almost like a symbolic act of something worse. This, in, in other words, th that it it is um, what that the that the burqa becomes a symbol of uh, of a of an ideology, namely Islam, uh, which would or or a particular branch of Islam, which would require this. Uh, no, you know, I don't think. Uh, I guess I don't think that that's the way I would see the argument. I don't think it's symbolic so much as it's saying that it's real, that, that you, you can't have someone covering their face, not because it's symbolizing something, but because mm -hmm. if you show me this person without letting me see his or her face, then you're not showing me the person. You're, right. you're showing me something less of a, 
less of a person. In a way, I think it would be, it, it has its um, analogs elsewhere. If you think about the yellow star of David that the, the National Socialist in Germany um, made the Jews wear. So you have this prominent yellow star that, now the, the Jew would still be able to show his face, but the point is, when you look at him, you're not looking at his face, you're looking at the yellow star. So I know, I don't, I know if, if I have a Jewish neighbor, I'm being instructed by the fact of that yellow star to look at him not as John, my neighbor, but as um, John, who's a Jew. Hmm. And so, so we, we've used, in that way, I would say that the yellow star really was not symbolism. It really was saying, this is who this person is to be known as. Right. Don't know him as a, tr a true full person. Know him as what we are consigning him to be. And then the same thing in, uh, like the socialist in um, China, where they, now they took a different tact than the, than the Muslims are taking. They did not make women cover their face. What they did is they made women dress like men. But again, that is taking, that's reducing who they are. It's reducing the fullness of the woman. So now if you look at a, a crowd of a thousand people, they're all dressed in the same drab, gray worker's uniform. And they're all, they all have smiles on their face because they know if they don't, they will, they will get plucked out and sent to re-education camps. But what we've done when we do something like that is we reduce the woman not to being, let's say, Susie, again, my neighbor, but to being this indistinguishable unit of this collective. And, and then if someone comes and says, well, you know, she's, she's a woman, you know, I would, I'm being instructed by this whole ideology, yes, but I don't care. Hmm. We dress her like a man. There's there's three things that I want to explore. Um, the, the, one is the, the text in in Exodus where God where where Moses says no one can look at your face and live or God says to Moses no one can look at my face and live and then right. also um, I, I want to hear what case you would make in other words we heard the case of the Danish uh, lawmakers I want to I want you to hone that a little bit for us and then I'm I'm also interested in how this intersects with um, kind of American uh, liberalism or especially the the current American feminism how how is it that, you know, what ought the feminist response to be to this? What is it, and why is it that way? So I want to kind of push in those three directions. We're, we're going to go to the break now, and that's like last like 90 seconds. If you're listening and you're thinking, I, a break? What's well, it's not It's going to be over before you know it. So hang on through the break. This is Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, talking with Pastor Warren Graff of Grace Lutheran Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We'll be back to talk about the Danish Burqa Law and what it means to our theology uh, just a few minutes. Stay tuned.
This week on the Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah. We'll share how you can benefit from art lessons this summer. And also we'll talk with a cookbook author about how you can cook delicious food for your family, even if you have multiple food allergies. We'll learn about one pastor's unique approach to adult catechesis. Dr. Joel Bierman will share with us about fatherhood. And we'll catch up with the Mercy Medical Team returning from Tanzania. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah weekdays at 9 a.m. on KFUO. Underwritten by Concordia University, Wisconsin. Concord Matters is a show seeking agreement in Christian confession. I'm Pastor Charles Henriksen, one of the hosts of Concord Matters, heard on Worldwide KFUO each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central and a repeat on Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. Central. We take an in-depth look at the Book of Concord with some fine Lutheran theologians. Concord Matters, live on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. on Worldwide KFUO, the messenger of good news. The first major book to be printed on the Gutenberg Press was the Bible. Printed in the mid-15th century, it was a copy of the Latin Vulgate and would have taken up to five years to complete. And of the approximately 180 copies printed, only 20 are known to survive today. Each copy contained about 1,300 pages. Each page had as many as 2,500 characters. The type resembling the handwriting of the period, all set by hand. Illustrations were hand-painted by artisans, making each Bible unique. Johannes Gutenberg's press brought the Bible to the people in their own language. And by igniting the spread of information and ideas, it became the catalyst for the Protestant Reformation. Engage with the Bible in all its sphere of influence over the centuries. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Just a program note, the next three weeks we're going to be doing... Um, we're going to be doing reruns because I'm going to be in Greece traveling the steps of St. Paul. Uh, we just had, by, by the way, uh, Pastor Graf, you and Elaine can come. We had a couple that just for medical reasons had to cancel yesterday, and so we've got two spots open. Uh, so if you and Elaine want to come to Greece next week, or if there's anyone listening that just wants to sign, you got to sign up today, so call me. Uh, send me a note, and uh, we'll get you on the trip. I'm joined by Pastor Warren Graf, who is talking about this. The Burka law in Denmark, the argument that it puts women in subjugation, and I want to—that was the argument that was put forth, at least by the lawmakers there. But I'm suspicious, Pastor Graf, that you could, in fact, offer a, in a more complete or compelling argument against the burqa. So I, that's what I want to hear. With first, you want you mind how? How would you, if you were, if they called you up to? Say the United States was having this argument. You were there to testify before Congress. How how would you make the argument? <laughs> um, yeah, you could make the argument, maybe passive aggressively, just by asking if, if you're before the Congress, before the Senate, ask all the women senators, um, request that they cover their face while they're questioning you, and I think they would quickly see the the evil of that. That. You can't speak to a U.S. senator, man or woman, and tell them, cover your face, I'm not going to recognize you as a person. So the, the argument could sort of take care of itself. But, but I, I do think it is, for us as Christians, it is worth us thinking about. Because we, we do have, like I mentioned, for our Lord, that we receive him by his face, we receive him by his voice. Um, 
and, and then also the other thing that comes in with that is the name. So when we're looking at a fellow Christian or a neighbor even who's not Christian, we're knowing them as the person that they are, which is all the uniqueness that the Lord gives them. And we're going to know that and be able to identify it and call upon them by hearing their voice, by looking them face to face, and by calling them by name. So that you don't just call a woman woman, but you call her by her name. You 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 recognize her, you honor her by her name, and and you would you would want or uh, hope for the same from her, of course. So with that, when you look in Scripture, well, first of all, let me just mention you mentioned in um, well, I think it's in Deuteronomy. It's it's a number of times in the Old Testament, but. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 32, uh, where the Lord uh, said, I will hide my face from them, so that's from my people Israel, and I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faithfulness. So when the Lord wants to bless, it is the priest speaking, the Lord lift his face upon you. The Lord um, let his face shine on you. When the Lord wants to condemn, it is, I will hide my face. They will not see me as a person. They may know me as God in general, as the you know higher power or something like that, but they will not know me as a person by looking at my face and by knowing my name. And that's where in Psalm 13, when there is the lament that the Lord of, of David saying he wants the Lord's blessing, it is, how long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? So David sees despair brought on by a man, a sinner, not being able to see the face of the Lord. And, and in Scripture, then, you seek the Lord's face by going to the temple. Because at the temple, that's where the priest is giving you the forgiveness of sins, announcing you clean. You are clean, he would actually say. It's one Hebrew word, but you are clean. Or I declare you clean by the sprinkled blood of the sacrifice. And then from that, he sends you home with the words, you know, the Lord uh, make his face shine upon you. The Lord's face uh, be lifted up upon you. So we now know God as a person with a full personality. And then as Christians, and, and this is an interesting word in James, the book of James, uh, the first verse of the second chapter, James 2, verse 1. And he writes, my brothers show, and this is in the English, I'm reading from ESV, show no, partial, no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. But when you go and you look at the Greek word for have no partiality, there's not a word there for partiality. What it says is, it, it's a word for receiving face. So it is, to we are to receive a, a brother's face. And, and of course, this is written in the, um, in the way that brother means um, our brothers and sisters in the faith. But when we look at someone else, we are to receive them by their face. Now, that's not some legalistic thing of I'm supposed to be able to make eye contact with the guy's face, but rather it's, I'm to receive him as the full person that he is or that she is. I'm, I'm to take them in all the gifts the Lord is giving through them, 
all the uniqueness that the Lord has bestowed upon them in, in his uh, creation of, of this particular person. And so James is saying that we receive the faith. In other words, we receive each other according to our, to our full personhood. Um, and that's translated, because it's kind of awkward the way I just said it, that's translated as show partiality, uh, show no partiality. But, hmm. but that means then that it's, if I'm walking into a crowd in Denmark or in Iran as a Christian, I should be receiving everyone according to their face, which means I should receive them as a gift of a particular person that the Lord has placed there in front of me. I should address them with honor. I should love my neighbor as myself. And when I turn to the woman and say, I'm going to cover your face, this is an offense then not just against that woman, but against the Lord who created her and gave her the uniqueness that he wants me to receive from her. I want to push in two different directions So, uh, the, uh, the, for the time we have left. The first is the this kind of strange, I, I've thought it a, a strange um, relationship between sort of American feminism and Islam, which it seems yeah. like Islam down to the root um, is going to diminish the value of, and the name, and as you said, the face of women and it would you would think that that would put them at odds with feminism, but oddly enough, they, it doesn't seem that they are at odds with them. What what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, there, there's two feminist voices that I would want to bring into that, and that would be worth a couple hours' discussion too. But one would be uh, Camille Paglia, who is one of the original feminists. She she wrote Sexual Personae and. and um, was a was a columnist for salon.com and all that so she's a you know she's a blue blood feminist as that goes and the other is um um ian hersey alley or ian hersey ali uh, who is a originally a muslim from uh somalia if i remember right she escaped she got up to denmark um she actually, and um, no, not Denmark, to Holland. And in Holland, she was actually serving in their parliament until she had to leave the country because of threats from the Islamic community because she was a former Muslim. But she's a, she considers herself a feminist. So what we have here is this comment coming from feminists such as Ian Hersey Ali and Camille Paglia that... When we're looking at the feminism that is facing us here in America, we're not looking at feminism. What we're looking at is a feminist movement that has taken over a, uh, a feminist urge that at first wanted to free women up. But now the feminist movement is not about freeing women, but is rather a, it's a movement searching for uh, political power, which is why... If you have someone like, well, like when, when uh, a President Clinton goes and uh, takes advantage of a young intern, the feminist movement did not sit there and say, this shall never happen. They did not stand up for the intern, Monica Lewinsky, at all, nor did they stand up for the women who accused Clinton of rape, because that was helpful in their pursuit of of the the. The political power. So treating feminism as a movement, not as an effort to uh, recognize women as full persons. So the, the point of all that would be then that 
the feminist movement, which is not about feminism in America then, but is about this gaining of political power, finds a natural ally in Islam because the enemy of my enemy is my, is my friend. Well, Islam has the same enemy as the feminist movement, and that would be um, the, the, those who believe in freedom, those, those, who are, those who are liberal in the classical sense. The, both the feminist movement and Islam see that as their enemy, and they must tear it down. So for, it, for the feminist movement in America to attack Islam would be for them to weaken themselves in that construct hmm, hmm. i gotta i'm gonna shift because we're gonna the clock always kills us at the end so i want to shift this is i mean you're right this is a couple of hours of conversation but to, uh but to bring it back to the theology and i want to pick up two verses in second corinthians um the first is in the end of chapter uh three which says um now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is liberty but we all with open face Behold, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. That, that picks up that idea of having an unveiled, open face. What's going on there? What's so important about it? No, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Um, you said that's Second Corinthians chapter 3? Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, right at the end. So we all with unveiled okay. face... Behold the glory of the Lord. And, uh, and I think this would be the idea of, um, I mean, this, this great uh, idea of being uncovered. Paul's picking up on the idea that when, yes. when, the, uh, when the Pharisees read the Scripture, they read it like through a veil. It's like they're, they're, they're reading it th through a covering. They can't see what's out there. The Scriptures are, in fact, they're also being hidden from the truth of the Scripture, so there's the veils between it, and when we have Christ, that veil is lifted. No, no I think that well, your point's most helpful, because that follows then in, in that chapter um, up earlier about looking on the face of Moses, where they could not do that because of the glory. And now we have it, I, I hadn't um, thought of that in, in this context, but it is the same thing of, we with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord. And when you think about what the glory is, unfortunately, we can think about glory as the Lord in all of his dynamic power that we can't look on. You know, it's all flashing and, and lights. But that's really the opposite of what glory is, in a way. Glory comes from the, the Hebrew word that means to be made heavy. So it's the Lord who is infinite, almighty, everywhere present, all of that, and yet he comes and he makes himself heavy. In other words, he puts himself in a tangible delivery, uh, in a um, physical way, so that I can actually touch him, uh, hear him, see him, and that's looking on his face. So the Lord's glory is whenever he shows up so that I can look at him. That would, that would include the water of baptism that I can look at and touch. It would in, certainly include the... Um, the body and blood given by means of the bread and wine that I can look at and, and see. So it is now that I cannot approach holy God, I will be destroyed. I better not see his face. But then he comes in his glory. He comes and makes himself tangible. And he says, look upon me, look at my face, take and eat, take and drink, 
And then, of course, again, that's followed with the words, the Lord lift his face upon you. Um, the Lord make his face um, be bright, be light upon Did you. you. Do you, do you remember this? That Luther makes this um, this point in the large catechism. He says the enemies of the gospel that he's fighting against. He says they don't care whether the Lord smiles or frowns on them. <laughs> in other words, one of the marks of unbelief ah. is you don't you don't care about the Lord's face. Isn't that stunning? No, I got, that is, I got one. Yeah, I got one more verse which pushes on then from from Second Corinthians three to Second Corinthians four, just a couple of verses down, where Paul says in verse five, "We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves." your servants for Jesus sake for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and then Paul continues right. but we have this yeah. treasure in earthen vessels which was by the way the verse that you preached on when I was ordained 13 years ago uh, like next week. How about that? But we uh -huh. we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just exactly what you were saying. Yeah, and and that follows what we're Paul's doing. That follows that Jesus is the image of God, and so the image of God on earth before we send Adam and Eve, that was God showing His face in creation. Until we destroyed that with our sin, of course. But now Jesus is the image of God, and the what the the call or the invitation to the sinner is look on his face. Hmm. So that's that's absolutely but, fantastic. The, the, this yeah. idea that our you know uh, Exodus thirty two no one can look on my face and live. God shows Moses his mercy, but because we know that to see the face of God as in our sin is to yes. be destroyed, but to see the face of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus is now to have life and and such and, and it's such a glorious life that not only can we see the face of God but now God can see us and so that we get this description of eternal life as that we will at last see him face to face we'll behold the face of Jesus that's how the, the book of revelation ends in chapter 21 that we'll see the face of God that's absolutely yeah. stunning pastor graf i thank you for this what are, it's always great. These conversations are really fantastic. So thanks for, thanks for being on Cross Defense. We'll look forward to the next conversation. Well, thank you, and, and uh, have much fun. Blessings on your trip to Greece. That, that's a yeah, that's right. We haven't, I haven't had anyone sign up in the last 30 minutes, so the spots are still open for those of you who are listening. And, but even more than that, we should rejoice together. This, I mean, this scriptural truth that, that, we, that we, Adam, look, Adam and Eve are busy hiding themselves. I mean, they're building fig leaves to cover their face so that God can't find them. But the Lord comes yes. and says, hey, hey, I have covered you with blood, which washes you and makes you clean and holy, yes. righteous in my sight. Thank you for listening to Cross the Fanks and for being on the show. And thanks to everyone who's listening. Uh, stay tuned. The next three weeks we'll do reruns. And then, uh, then we'll be back after it considering the curiosities of this world with the light of the Lord's mercy and rejoicing in the joy and truth that the Lord Jesus has for us. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and I'll talk to you soon. God's peace be with you. Listening to Cross Defense.
produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Cross Defense on Worldwide KFUO.